If someone told you, "Hey, don't eat that. It's going to take time off your life." Would you actually stop eating it? There's a fascinating new study in the journal Nature Food that we're going to talk about today that looks at food not in terms of calories, but in how that particular type of food impacts your life. The researchers looked at almost 6,000 different foods to show the difference in minutes added or minutes shaved from your life. And yes, there are foods that you could be eating that are taking minutes off your life. So what are they? Joining us to tell us is University of Michigan professor and researcher for this study, Olivier Joliet.、Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning.、Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking us with you. This is so fascinating. This study, though, how did you determine this? Like, give us an idea of what you did here. Yeah. So、uh, the idea was was、uh, there are really different factors. I mean, when you look at a label on the food, it's complicated. You have the、uh, Amount of fiber, sodium, and and you don't know really what to look at. So, we look in fact at the large、uh, study which was existing, not not from us, but、uh, with more than seven thousand researchers, which is a global burden of disease, and they have identified fifteen dietary risk factors. And based on that, we calculated, for example, in a hot dog, how how much processed meat you have. You have about sixty grams. And this、uh, study, the GBD, the Global Burden of Disease, gave us it's about half a minute loss per gram. So 60 gram, a bit less than a half a minute, that makes 27 minutes lost due to the processed meat. And in addition, you have some sodium inside your、uh, hot dog, it's and and some、uh, trans fat, so that's another 10 minutes. But you also gain, you have some polyunsaturated fat, which are good for your health. But you gain only one minute. So, as a whole, you are losing about 36 minutes. And we repeated that for all sort of, of food. And these risks are not only、uh, nutrient, but also some food groups like fruit, vegetables, whole grain, and so on. Right. So you had to balance it out between what was good for you and versus what was good for you. So, Olivier, which foods came out the worst? Which are what are we eating that is really bad for us? This is really processed meat. And that's lead to the content of like nitrites in them or, or other additives,、uh, which might in carcinogen. So、uh, that that was the the worst for the health for the the environment because we also look not only at, at our health but the health of our climate and and which is also affecting humans on the long term.、Uh, then beef, who who is really the highest?、Uh, beef is twice higher for carbon footprint, four kilo CO two per kilo beef. To produce it, and it's twice higher than lamb and pork, and four times or even more higher than dairy products or, or poultry products. Wow. Okay. Now the one that's getting all the headlines, though, is the hot dog, right? That's right. It, it become a bit viral, but、uh, at least it's not a shock. Make make perhaps people think, oh, perhaps I could make a small change, and and、uh, I'm not that desperate for a hot dog in the end. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, Olivier. That's what we're asking people too this morning because you can tell them all this, but a lot, as you just said, a lot of this information was already available. Like we know hot dogs aren't good for us, but we still eat them. Yes, but that's where number have some power. I mean, when you quantify that,、uh, you can think, okay, perhaps I should I should switch to something is a bit healthier than that, and. You have, I mean, with the white meat or the dairy product, you still have quite a few choices and 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 nice things to eat and tasty things to eat.
Did you also look at which foods added time to your life? Yes. And so uh, this, this can be a, a mix, really. In fact, the, the food which are most beneficial, we look at per kilocalorie in that case, uh, rather than per serving size for the detrimental. And uh, vegetables, uh, nuts, nuts and seeds, I mean peanuts, uh, almonds. Almonds have, a, if they are produced in California, they have a relatively high water footprint. We should we should be better. I've seen in Israel they can they can produce with much less water than what we are doing in in California. Right. And also whole grain or seafood are good and legumes. So you you have a choice there. And don't take only peanuts because uh, after thirty grams they are not beneficial anymore. So you you need a mix. Right. Okay. So, but you're saying that if we make the right choices, then we're actually adding time to our life versus taking away from our life. Correct. When you, you remove the beef and the processed meat and you add this mix of, of healthy food I just described, you can reduce your carbon footprint, your dietary carbon footprint by one third, which is big for only 10% change of our calories, and you can gain about 50 minutes per day uh, of healthy life. And it's not only putting your life, it's making it healthier, so it, it's enjoying uh, and having a enjoyable life. Right. Olivia, did this change anything about your eating habits? Like when you did this, did you think, oh boy, I have to stop eating some stuff too? Uh, I have to say, in fact, uh, I I liked hot dogs. And since I did that, I say, okay, I mean, uh, uh, (laughs) I I quitted hot dog. I mean, one hot dog is two cigarettes. So I've never smoked, but uh, uh, there I basically reduced the sausages and, and Wait a minute. Did you just say that eating one hot dog is like smoking two cigarettes? That's, that's if it's uh, 36 minutes of life loss. Uh, one cigarette is about 20 minutes of life loss. So we are, we are in that order of magnitude. I would imagine that you're not very popular with the hot dog industry. Uh, perhaps they can improve, in fact, their products by, by and, and I hope some have already done, uh, uh, by re- removing some of the, of, of the product in it. For example, nitrites, if they are added to a, uh, a processed meat, they are there to, to keep it red. And do we really need to add the carcinogen to have the meat red? Perhaps we can get used to different habits. So is it the nitrates in there that is causing the problems? Like that's why sausages are also bad? We don't know that exactly, to, to be honest. Uh, but it, it's one additive, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I cannot say which brand would still add them, but uh, uh, and it depends on the legislation in the country uh, considered uh, might change that. But that was one example of additive. But the, the, the sort of epidemiological study where they were added processed meats uh, and looking people eating one more serving of processed meat, so they didn't look at hot dog themselves. I mean, it was that, that's where we, they look at this risk factor, and we don't know exactly why uh, in there. So in the future, we hope to get better data to know, for example, if a banana is, is not as good as an apple or something like that. We, we don't have this resolution yet in the data. Right. So hopefully we get better data. Well, then we're going to have to have you back on when you get that. Olivier, thank you so much for your time. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. As we come to the end of summer, Vaughn, I have a feeling that this did not go the way anybody in the government thought it might go. 
Uh, no, you're, I think you're quite right about that, Simi. And in fact, it's interesting to go back and read the kind of things that Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix and John Horgan were saying at the beginning of summer, which uh, tells you they didn't expect this. Horgan was very excited about uh, moving to phase three of the restart and looking forward to phase four starting Labor Day. Dr. Henry said uh, she was opposed to vaccine passports. In fact, even at the beginning of this month, she was saying that, uh, oh, no, we're absolutely on track for phase four. Uh, She discounted the need for masks right up to the moment she told us to start wearing them again. So, yeah, I think you've seen a government in denial uh, all summer. Uh, And uh, with the result, you know, that the fourth wave is sweeping over us, If they'd taken stronger steps and delivered stronger messages at the beginning of the summer, uh, who knows where we'd be today, but certainly we're not where they wanted to be, and you can see that in the numbers. Yeah, what do you think happened? I was away last week, but I was following along with the news, and I mean, the week before when you and I were talking, we knew what Dr. Bonnie Henry was dead set against, and then it all changed. Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the general observation is go back to this time last year. John Horgan was so sure that everything was fine that he was scheming to call a snap election, uh, even as the second wave was starting to build. Dr. Henry would say later she wished she'd followed her spidey sense and brought in restrictions sooner during the second wave, but the postmortem shows she didn't. Uh, We started the year uh, with everyone in denial about a third wave. So the whole pattern of the B.C. government handling of this has been To me, premature victory laps, uh, not nearly enough attention to the next wave that was coming. Uh, We still have some very good results, so it's a mixed report, but I think the general trend has been to underestimate to take premature victory laps. The other thing I think that happened, and with the passage of time, it may become more apparent, but I think a real a critical moment in the whole government regulatory scheme around the pandemic was um, the explosion of outrage on Twitter when Dr. Henry herself was posted on social media without a mask, doing selfies with her fan club at uh, the BC Lions game. I have to think that uh, that with better advice, in government, she wouldn't have gone to that event at all, and she certainly wouldn't have delivered the wrong optics by not wearing a mask. So, you know, I think it's been a learning experience. Uh, I'm gratified, and I think it's encouraging that they're now taking a tougher line. John Horgan is back. Uh, He was certainly entitled to go on holiday, but he's delivering a stronger message on his return, as we saw last week. So, Uh, Maybe we can blunt the impact, uh, level the, uh, bend the curve again on the fourth wave, but it's pretty discouraging, particularly if, you know, you have an aged parent in long-term care, if you're worried about your kids going back to school and the teacher's still not being required to be vaccinated. There's plenty out there to be concerned of, and I think some of it was avoidable had the government been a little more prudent and a little more cautious. Yeah, exactly. Now look where we are. So what was the case count on Friday there? It was a scary high number. It was approaching 900, uh, the high 800s, uh, the highest number we've had since uh, April. The difference is important to note. The hospitalizations and ICU rates are not where they were back in April. They're less than half where they were back in April. And that 
That is the difference that the vaccines have made. Uh, People are still getting COVID-19. A small percentage of the total number of British Columbians who were vaccinated are still adding to the case count, too, although nothing like uh, what we saw, uh, we see among the unvaccinated. But yes, uh, we are concerned about the case count, but the hospitalizations, the ICU numbers are much lower because even if people are getting COVID-19, it's a milder case for most of them. That still hasn't prevented some sectors of the healthcare system from again being stressed. Uh, I know you've been following, and uh, W's been reporting on. Uh, the trouble in Royal Inland Hospital in Campbell, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of local circumstances there, but the end result is, uh, you know, and we're hearing it from nurses again and healthcare workers again. Man, they've been fighting this thing for 18 months. Is it surprising that some of them are feeling burnout and overwork? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was wondering, too, is, okay, but what does that mean for where we are headed? We've got all these new regulations now, what have you seen, Vaughn, in terms of people responding? I was at the mall on Friday, and it was amazing to me how quickly everybody had put their masks back on. You know, it, yeah, you're right. And we've seen there's two indicators here that indicate that British Columbians are ready for this stuff, right? We're not, most of us, hey, we've had enough of the damn thing, right? But we're ready for restrictions if that's what it would take. Yes, masking is way up. I heard a report from BC Ferries that said, oh yeah, no, people are putting masks on again. Um, you know, and, and, and that's great. Even walking around outdoors, I'm seeing more masks. The other thing, of course, also reported and also was an intended effect of all these warnings is we've seen a spike in vaccinations. People are signing up exactly. to get vaccinated. They've been meaning to do it all along. You know, our our discussion around vaccination has tended to focus on this tiny minority of anti-vaxxers. But really, uh, we've been told this again and again. Number one reason, the number one reason why people haven't gotten vaccinated yet is uh, they just haven't gotten around to exactly. it, and it wasn't all that convenient. So, you know, the the... The mild incentives they're offering, or disincentives if you want, the sticks instead of the carrots, have produced much better numbers on the vaccination front. That was the government's intention. Again, had they pushed a little harder at the beginning of the summer, I think the rate of vaccination would be even higher than it is today. Okay, so what are we expecting to hear from this Adrian Dix press conference today? So it's an interesting press conference. It's Dr. Bonnie Henry won't be there. We haven't been told why, but who will be there are healthcare representatives of the healthcare unions. It is said to be a press conference, two o'clock, on the benefits for people working in acute care. So we have seen a vaccination plan for long-term care. There's a deadline, October the 12th, get vaccinated, uh, all of that. There's incentives and disincentives there to get vaccinated. When asked about, well, what about the rest of the healthcare system? We were told last week we're working on it. So I'm guessing we're going to get an initial look at that since the unions are there or union reps are there and they're talking about benefits for workers in acute care i don't think it's going to be sticks i don't think it's going to be you have to get vaccinated i think more it's this the last push of incentives to get it done to deal with burnout to deal with all that but we'll see all right we will see thank you for that vaughn bye bye simi 
Well, the fire season for 2021 is going to go into the books as a bad one. It's on par with years like 2017 and 2018. And in terms of acres burned, it sounds like this year is actually going to come in third, right behind those two record-breaking years. The season started early. It has raged all summer. We've had stories of ash raining from the sky, dark orange skies in the daytime. And as of this morning, there are still 233 approximately wildfires burning across the province. So how do we try and mitigate the wildfire threat in the years ahead? What do we need to do to manage, maybe even prevent them from taking hold? Joining us now for more on this is Lori Daniels, Professor of Forestry at UBC. Lori, thank you for being with us. It's nice to be talking to you again. Yeah, is this the time to be talking about this, like for planning purposes? It's not, season is not quite over yet. Well, the season's not quite over, as you, as you just said. In fact, one new ignition, again, just outside of Penticton, very visible from the Okanagan near Skaha Creek, um, and, and still expanding. It was at 100 hectares yesterday afternoon when the wind picked up, and Lots of smoke coming up from that fire, just one more very visible fire to remind us how important that prevention piece is to make sure that none of us are making errors that could start a fire. So is the work being done right now then to start thinking about how do we prevent this from happening again? Yeah, I think uh, these options around how to be preventative, how to be proactive and be prepared for fire seasons, this is our new reality. We need to be doing this 24-7, 365 days of the year. So it's going to have to become part of the way that we coexist with, with wildfire. It's not going away. We've experienced over the last five years, three out of the last five years are the biggest fire seasons on record. We've had these big fires, and despite all of our modern technology and capabilities, these fires are simply exceeding everything that we have to throw at them. And so it is time for us to rethink our strategies and to be better prepared. How do we do that? Well, we have to do that across a whole range. Um, So it comes down to individual homeowners right up to all levels of government. So for individual homeowners, all of us who live in fire-prone environments, whether we're talking about the lower mainland, um, near our urban parks, or anywhere near North Shore mountains, we should all be thinking about fire-smarting our homes. So there's a first step, is to become better aware about how, um, how fire might affect our communities and our homes, and to think about ways that we as individuals can be prepared And obviously, this is incredibly important in the interior dry parts of the province. But I think it's also important here in the lower mainland and on Vancouver Island, where we sometimes forget because we live in a coastal temperate rainforest, it's so wet in the winter, but we are highly fire prone in the summer as well. So making sure that our yards are are clear of burnable debris, that we've not got any leaves and other burnable material caught in our gutters and roofs. If a fire starts, it's often from sparks off of the fire. You were describing the ash raining down. Well, it can also be sparks and burning embers coming off of a fire, landing on the roof of a house. And if there's burnable debris there, it's going to catch fire very quickly. So being aware of that and making sure that our homes have defensible space around them and that we've reduced our vulnerability to fire. So there's a first step that we as individuals can do. 
Right. I know that there's there's other places that there there's communities that are doing this, right? There are some I, I know we spoke to the mayor of one small community that they actually feel these kinds of measures and their fire smart program helped save homes. Absolutely. So a really great example would be um, Logan Lake. So if we scale up, then the next is to be assessing the forests surrounding, especially, uh, surrounding, especially our rural communities um, in parts of British Columbia where they're surrounded by forests right up to backyards. And so looking at those forests and assessing how dense is the forest, how much burnable debris is down on the ground, and then mitigating that, actively managing our forests to reduce the amount of burnable um, debris that could cause or could contribute to a fire. So we see that anybody who's been up to Whistler might have seen the signs and seen the active management in and around the community of Whistler. And I mentioned Logan Lake and in particular, because um, fire burned right up to the edge of Logan Lake this summer, the Tremont fire or Tremont Creek fire came right up to the edge of town, but they have done an excellent job of doing fuels mitigation in the forest surrounding their town, in their community forest. And that gave them the defensible space combined with the fire smart homes within the community that um, although that fire burned within 10 meters, 30 feet of homes, they didn't lose any homes or structures. Right. So you said so that we need to do more of that. Effective. Absolutely. We need to do a lot more of that across our province. We've known since 2004 you know, the big firestorm, if we look back through time, the one that affected Okanagan Mountain Park and the city of Kelowna, as well as Barrier McClure, were so badly affected in 2003. We have known since then that there is about 650,000 hectares of forests around our province that surround communities that need that proactive fuels management. We haven't addressed all of those needs yet. We need to pick up the pace and we need to make sure that our communities throughout the province are fire smart and have those proactive measures for wildland urban interface treatments to reduce the fuels around those communities. Right. So what would you tell the provincial government here, Lori? What should they get on right away? No more tinkering. We have been talking about the need for transformative change since 2004. And so far, we're not moving fast enough. We need the infusion of funding. We need to build the capacity in our communities. And we need to get on this problem. So we need those proactive measures. And it's going to also mean scaling up and rethinking how we're managing the forests on the broader landscape as well. For many good reasons, we have focused on forest products and timber production in British Columbia, and it's benefited us economically. But there's some unintended consequences, and some of that has been to reduce the resilience of our forests to climate change and to wildfire. We need to change that process. It's going to mean a little bit of compromise. We won't make as much economic gain or as much money from Mm -hmm. some of our forests over the next few years, but it will give us a long-term sustainable forest industry and more resilience safer communities when they think about firing and wildfire. Well, Lori, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. We are about a week away now from the start of the school year, a school year that isn't going to look like what we thought it was even a few weeks ago. We know now there are some rules that will be put in place, but is it going to be enough to provide comfort to teachers who are heading back to those classrooms? Well, joining us now is Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. We know there have been some, you know, new policies, procedures put in place a week ago. How are teachers feeling about that? 
Well, it still doesn't seem proportional to what's going what's going on in education right now. So, in other words, we've never been in schools with the Delta variant um, accounting for so many um, of the cases of COVID-19 in BC between 97 and 100%. Uh, and what we're seeing in other jurisdictions is concerning. We're also seeing case counts three times what they were last August. So to go into the school year with actually fewer precautions um, isn't making a lot of sense. And certainly the exclusion of kindergarten to grade three from the mask policy, has ne- there's never been a, a good rationale um, for that. And so I think it's, it's just not making sense to people. Last year, the argument was that young children didn't transmit the virus as readily as adults. But we're seeing that's different with the Delta variant. And so I think that's the part that people are wondering, like, why aren't these safety measures sort of uh, proportional to what we're seeing in terms of the, the Delta variant? Do you know how many teachers are vaccinated? I don't have a number of teachers vaccinated, but we're not seeing any vaccination hesitancy amongst teachers. Um, Last school year was incredibly stressful with teachers feeling like there just weren't enough tools in place to be safe. And we saw that when we fought for um, teachers to be prioritized um, as essential workers within the vaccine program, we really saw teachers flock to getting vaccinated. So, uh, you know, we are looking at it um, and believe that teachers are vaccinated at actually a very high rate. But the reality is the majority of our, our students are not eligible for vaccinations. So even with vaccines, and vaccines are incredibly important, and we encourage everyone to get vaccinated who isn't vaccinated already, um, we still need those safety measures in place because we'll have children that aren't vaccinated. Right, but how do you know you're not seeing any vaccine hesitancy among teachers if you're not keeping track, if you haven't asked teachers? Well, we have surveyed our teachers. We're surveyed three times last year. Um, and certainly we get a lot of feedback from teachers um, and we meet with local leaders weekly. And so we're just not seeing any sort of indication that teachers are vaccine hesitant. We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing teachers, uh, you know, uh, posting on social media how excited they are about getting vaccinated, and, and that really has resonated throughout the whole system. And so we're just not seeing it. Um, but certainly, uh, we think that everyone should be vaccinated, uh, all communities that we're concerned about. And we also would like to see a plan in place for the 12 to 17-year-olds. Um, that is a group that is lagging behind the provincial average. And um, we are seeing in different parts of the problem, you know, quite low rates, different parts of the province, I should say, quite low rates of vaccination amongst the 12 to 17 year olds. And so we'd really like to see a focus on that. Right. But if, I mean, if teachers are vaccinated and they're wearing masks in their classroom, doesn't that set the example then? And if they're protected? Absolutely. And that, that needs to happen. And that will happen because all adults in the buildings need to wear masks. Um, and all the grades 4 to 12, which is great. We're, we're just questioning why the kindergarten to grade 3 students were excluded from that. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, especially given what we're seeing in other jurisdictions around the spread of the, you know, highly contagious uh, Delta variant. Right. So what are you telling, like, parents? I think parents are scared enough, as it is right now, about, you know, the upcoming school year and all of the unknowns. Uh, how are teachers feeling? Well, teachers are concerned, and, you know, the start of the school year is always an exciting time. Teachers are always happy to welcome new students and get to know them, and so, you know, it's still an exciting time of year, but there is certainly a cloud, 
And what we were hoping for this year is that we wouldn't have to be pushing so hard for those safety measures to be in place, that they would be in place, especially after the year that we had last year. Right. Um, but we made it through last year when a, every other jurisdiction didn't the way BC did, having kids in classroom for the whole year it wasn't ideal, but we did it. And we know that, you know, if there was a problem, we dealt with it. Yeah, and we really have teachers to thank for keeping kids safe. A lot of teachers went way above and beyond doing additional supervision to ensure their ch- their um, class was separated from other classes. Like, And, and that took a toll, there's no doubt. Um, however, last year we didn't have the Delta variant um, so highly prevalent in our communities. We have this year, though, and we're seeing case counts far beyond what we saw last year. So what we're looking for is some additional tools that can be used in schools um, to keep kids safe. So we know that the province is working on ventilation systems. We're certainly hoping to have a report around ventilation systems prior to the start of the school year. We'd like to see the plan around opening clinics and schools for the 12 to 17-year-olds. They need to be specifically targeted. Um, and we'd like to see masks extend to kindergarten. We think that's a really important measure. Okay, and is there going to be any update, though, on finding out about the vaccination levels of teachers? Like, even in some of these communities where vaccination rates overall in the communities are not high enough? Well, you know, the province, we would like to see the province collecting more data on vaccination rates generally, um, and we'd see, like to see the release of timely data. So we don't have the ability to uh, do that kind of analysis that the, um, you know, BCCDC does, and I know right now they're not tracking occupation-based Uh, vaccination rates, but that certainly is an area that, um, you know, we would encourage them to do so. Right. So what is your message to your members then? I mean, can the BCTF not say, listen, teachers, you need to be vaccinated? Oh, and we have many times. So we've sent out many correspondence to teachers. Um, We have publicly stated, you know, that everyone needs to be vaccinated. um, And that's absolutely our stand. We understand how important vaccinations are in terms of keeping everyone in our communities safe. We'd like to see, you know, a lot more work done in those communities that do have low vaccination rates. I don't think there's any question about that part of it. The reality is other measures also need to be in place. Vaccines aren't the only measure that can be used because under 11, 11-year-old and under students aren't, don't have access to vaccines. So there has to be other measures in place as well. And, and we are seeing some concerning things in other jurisdictions that, you know, while don't directly translate, um, should give us a window into what could be happening in BC schools in September. So we are absolutely asking all parents, especially of young children, to send them with masks and encourage, encourage them to wear them. You know, just because there isn't a mandate doesn't mean all young children um, can't and shouldn't be wearing masks. And in the guidelines, it does say that in kindergarten, grade three, masks are strongly encouraged. So we really hope that all families send their children, their young children with masks to school. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Now, we had been hoping here to talk about the impact of Hurricane Ida. It was a Category 4 uh, hurricane that hit Louisiana yesterday. It's now been downgraded to a tropical storm, but boy, has it 
ever left a lot of damage in its wake. I say hoping, we had been hoping to talk about it, is that we had lined up a guest with the National Weather Service, a meteorologist who's in New Orleans, but we just barely managed to get a hold of him a couple of minutes ago and he's just can't do it. They are in an emergency, full-on situation there. They barely have phone service. You know, they've got to keep the lines clear. So obviously they have an emergency situation there. So we'll try to catch up with him in the days ahead. But I think that just tells you how difficult things are right now. Now, we know that more than a million people are without power. And the very little footage that we have seen right now, because it's just starting to trickle out, has showed... Uh, you know, the winds just like ripping the top of roofs off and just like the amount of devastation and damage has just been unreal. And in one parish alone, so Jefferson Parish, which is, you may remember that from Hurricane Katrina, because that was a pretty hard hit area at that time as well. There have been, again, reports of people climbing into their attics to escape the rising waters. And in that area, they say authorities have received at least 200 calls since Sunday And of course, emergency authorities were unable to even respond to the vast majority of those calls. So this morning, that's what their job is. They're trying to reach some of the people who called for help 24 hours ago, and they're anxious to see how many of them may still need help at this point. As of this morning, you've still got most of New Orleans without electricity. And the reason why that is, all eight of the transmission lines that deliver power to the city were just completely knocked out of service. Can you imagine, to an entire big city like New Orleans, the only electricity they've had in the last 12 hours or so has been from generators. And the big power company that provides power to the state has said, It's going to take days just for them to figure out how much damage has been done to their grid and their, quote, far longer to actually restore electricity to that area. So a lot of this, these parts of New Orleans that you're seeing the flooding too, remember, dealt with it in Hurricane Katrina. It was, what, 16 years ago to the day yesterday that Hurricane Katrina struck. And much of it had been rebuilt. The levees had been rebuilt. They had, you know, tried to prevent something like this from happening again. And then what we're seeing once more is these streets just flooded with runoff from the heavy rain that they had there. So they they think at this point that the system that they've got of levees and barriers and pumps, uh, that they think it held firm, but they still have seen a lot of flooding. They've got debris, they've got you know boats and stuff which were unmoored, uh, but they're hoping right now that these levees held but they're still seeing some flooding outside of that levee system too. So it has been really a catastrophic situation for that area. At least one person has been confirmed killed, but the governor of Louisiana just said moments ago, they expect that number to rise dramatically once they are able to uh, get in there and start seeing exactly what happened. So the rain and everything from now Tropical Storm Ida has moved into Mississippi and it's still causing a lot of problems there. But uh, Louisiana is still trying to figure out all of the damage that happened. And, you know, all sorts of people are down there too. In fact, we've been hearing in the news this morning uh, from a, a local resident, actually, someone who's from B.C., who had been in that area, is right now in Dallas, but has been on a business trip and was just in the center of the storm just a couple of days ago. And wisely, 
Uh, his name is Marco. He and his father decided, you know what, time to leave because they had a note that was slipped under their hotel room door that essentially said, you know, sorry, but the hotel and casino where they were staying is going to close. And it was closing yesterday at one. So he talked about his experience. He joined Sterling Fox yesterday uh, about the whole, whole you know, experience of getting evacuated. Yeah, so we were down here working with a distributor called Armstrong McCall, and uh, we've been traveling all through Texas. We're actually on the road for about uh, 11 weeks here, and um, we were at the IP Resort and Casino in Biloxi, uh, kind of watching the storm with, you know, one eye and and seeing what was going on. And uh, on Friday night at about 10 p.m., we got a notice slid under our door um, saying that the hotel and casino was closing down uh, 1 p.m. the next day and to gather our belongings and leave as soon as possible. Mm. You know, it, it started with intrigue and it got scary pretty fast when we saw that notice and uh, we needed to, to evacuate. So we, we decided to leave uh, right then and there and we drove to Jackson, Mississippi, about two hours north and spent the night and made our way to Dallas to, to get out of there. You know, we're, we've never seen a storm like this and uh, didn't want to plan on it either. No, wise choice. And, you know, Marco and his dad are actually pretty lucky because they managed to make it to Dallas. And I was wondering, well, how did they manage to get a hotel in Dallas? Because you could think an awful lot of people were probably trying to get out of the path of this hurricane. So we actually saw it. We went to Jackson and we thought, you know, we were checking in first in Jackson at around one in the morning and we thought we'd have no problem finding a hotel, but we had to go to four hotels before we found one with any space. I think a lot of people were doing the same things we were doing and um, the hotel we're in now in Dallas has no available rooms and I think people are definitely coming here for a little bit of safety. It was the next stop on our trip. We just had to come about four days early. All right, so they're lucky, though, that they did manage to find a place because I would imagine a lot of people are looking for that right now. So as I mentioned earlier, we had been hoping to speak with Benjamin Scott, who's a National Weather Service meteorologist in New Orleans. And when we did, when we were able to get a hold of him, I mean, the connection was terrible. He said they didn't have power, like they're just services terrible down there. And he said they're just in an emergency situation. So he wasn't able to spend you know, five minutes talking to us, totally understandable, but it just does give you an idea of kind of the state of emergency that they find themselves in there. So we will keep track of that for you and have the updates as the day progresses.